Good morning, Four Corners. Thank you all for those who were just up here for leading us in worship. It's uh, always incredible to consider the goodness of God that He would call us to belong to Him, that He would give us a family to belong to, that He would give us not just Himself as our Father, but He would give us brothers and sisters with whom we can come together and worship on a day like this uh, in corporate worship. You know, we prayed before with the, uh, with the worship team, those who were leading this morning, we prayed just recognizing that we worship God all throughout the week. We get time alone with Him and we get to enjoy Him. But what a special thing it is when we get to come together out of the overflow of each of our own individual private times with God, our own individual worship. We get to come together in an overflow of that in a room like this and worship our great King and declare to one another in all kinds of affliction, all kinds of struggles that we hope in God. You never know who is seeing you, who is standing next to you as you're singing praises to God. You never know as you're praising God here in corporate worship who is, is looking out of their periphery and looking over at you and being encouraged as they see you exalting the Lord. And so we, we see that horizontal aspect even to our worship today. So please, just to sing. Let's sing as we're, as we're going through worship. Not just listen, but let's participate. I want to thank those who are working so hard as volunteers in this transition to set us up uh, for our worship time here on Sunday mornings and also working with the, with the kids and to set up the kids' space. Uh, there have been a number of volunteers who have been uh, particularly helpful. And uh, unfortunately, I need to add to that statement with, with this plea, and that is we need more. We need more volunteers. We really do. Uh, as, as typically happens, and very unfortunately it is the case, this falls on a set few. It falls on a select few. So one thing I also need to say is service like this is not just uh, the job of the deacons and elders. Okay, I need to say that. Uh, this, this is the kind of thing that we as a whole body come together. And let me say this. When we serve one another, that is worship. So it's not just we come together at this time and uh, we worshiped for the week, check, but we actually are serving each other, loving each other. One of the ways that we do that is to come together uh, in preparation for this time of worship. So, so much goes into uh, our ability to do this. And so just a plea to get along with God and just ask him how and ask not just God, but ask God's people here, uh, Brett, uh, Joanna, uh, uh, our deacons, uh, any of us elders, how you can get plugged in and help uh, with Four Corners set up. So uh, with that being said, as most of you know, we are currently working through the first book of the Bible as a church. We're working through Genesis, and we, uh, in our vision statement as a church, the first part of that says building on exposition. And that means that as a church, we really do believe that we should go through the Bible expositionally. And that as we do this, we'll cover many different kinds of texts. So in, in the recent past, we've covered uh, the Gospel of John. We've done a passage on the family in Ephesians. We've, we've done Titus, the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're in Genesis. And so over time, we cover a lot of Scripture. But one of the great things about going through a book is that you get to, to see it unfold, the message of it unfold as the author intended so you don't just pluck a passage of Scripture out of the Bible and say a few 
things about it and make it applicable to life, get a few gold nuggets, and then move on with life. You forget the text that way. But one of the ways that the text, I think, gets imprinted on our hearts is that we walk through it and we let it just unfold for us as the Holy Spirit, through the biblical author, makes, the, uh, makes his intentions known. So uh, with that being said, we are now in the book of Genesis, and today we come to the genealogy in chapter 5. And what's funny is that when you do ex- expositional preaching, uh, yes, you preach even genealogies. And so here we are in uh, genealogy, the first big genealogy in Genesis, chapter 5. So please turn there. And yes, we will do the whole chapter today. We'll do all of chapter 5. So we do the genealogies, but not so slowly, so as to overburden all of us. But we will, we will do this today. As one commentator puts it, most readers of Scripture do not normally consider the genealogies among its more exciting parts. I think we would all agree with that. That's not where we go to. A genealogy is probably not your go-to passage for devotions or Bible study. You're probably not in a hard time thinking, I really need to read a genealogy right now. That's not your go-to. Maybe you go to the Gospel of John. Maybe you go to the Psalms. Maybe you read uh, that glorious chapter of Romans 8 or Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 or Revelation 21. These are the kinds of passages we think of when we get uh, particularly pinned in in life. But it is all God's Word, and it is all useful and profitable for the equipping of the saints. And that's exactly what Paul writes to Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for making the man of God, woman of God, complete. And so here we are in Genesis chapter 5. But as we grow in our understanding of the Bible, I think we also grow in our appreciation for the genealogies. And that's not to say that you uh, are, are falling far behind if you don't appreciate the genealogies. We all struggle with that. But I think the more we grow in our understanding of the content of the Bible, the meta-narrative, and the, the, the focus of the Bible, the more we will appreciate these genealogies. And delight even, maybe that's an overstatement, but delight even to read them. Why? Why do I say that? Well, let me give you three reasons. First, genealogies tell us that there is movement and purpose in the Bible. Let me say that again. By the way, this is not the first point of the sermon. It's just the first point of the preliminary sermon. So first, genealogies tell us that there is movement and purpose in the Bible. There is a reason that the New Testament begins with a genealogy. It tells us that that there's a momentum in Scripture. Do you see that? The genealogies give us that. And they're rapid. They build very quickly from name to name to name. They're rapid fire, and they, they create a sense of momentum, a sense of movement. They create a, a sense of trajectory as you are traveling through the pages of Scripture. And in this, what they do is they tell us that there is a plan. 
And that then tells us that there is a God who plans. There is an overseer. That there's someone who is orchestrating the events of history. The birth of people. These, these lines of people tell us that there is a God who is overseeing everything. And in this sense, in this sense, genealogies have a way, a unique way of building up our faith. You might not think on the surface that genealogies would do that, but they do in this sense. They tell us of a God who is purposing things throughout the pages of the Bible and who is entirely in control to see to it that his plan comes to fruition. So that's the first reason why I think as your understanding of the Bible grows, your appreciation for genealogies will grow. The second reason is that genealogies tell us that God delights in and works through people. Think about that. What is a genealogy? It's a list of names of people, real people, who were born, who lived, who died, who experienced hard times and good times, people who lived with their feet on the same earth we walk on, who looked up at the same moon we see at night, people just like us. And what this tells us is that despite our brokenness, Despite the brokenness of our world, God still sees fit to accomplish his purposes through people. And I think this encourages us. It encourages us that God wants to accomplish his purposes through us. So the genealogies in that sense also build motivation. They build encouragement into the Christian life by reminding us of this great truth. There's a third reason why I think our appreciation of genealogies grows, and that is genealogies tell us that God's plan and God's working through people really come down to one person. So if they tell us that God has a plan, he oversees all, he's in control, and if they tell us that he loves people and delights to use people and to work among people, all of this really comes to one person. The focus and big story of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, one of the things we do when we have a uh, deacon or an elder candidate is we give a, a, a theology exam, which basically is something they have to, to take home and, and fill out. And one of the things I've thought about is instead of giving it to them to take home and fill out, we might should just kind of call them in, sit them down in a room, put it in front of them with a pen, take their phone and say, go, and just see. See what comes out of, of that theology exam. I'm not saying we're going to do that, so don't worry. But that might actually be a, a better approach. But one of the things that we ask in that theology exam is, what is the big story of the Bible? And, of course, there's much that can be said there, and that can be answered from various angles. But the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the big story of the Bible. He is the focus of all of Scripture. And the genealogies remind us of this. What does this do? It increases our awe of and love for Christ. So now we see that genealogies build up our faith. They encourage us in our work. 
usefulness to God, and they point us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a little, little apologetic for the usefulness of genealogies. So with that being said, this morning we'll be looking at the first major genealogy of the Bible, which is found in chapter 5, as I said before. <clears throat> and we are introduced to this genealogy <coughs> excuse me, with two smaller genealogies at the end of chapter 4, which is what we looked at last week. <clears throat> the title of last week's sermon was The Birth of Civilization. And we came up there to the very end of chapter 4 of Genesis and looked at those two smaller genealogies. And the first of these was the genealogy of the murderer Cain. It was a, a genealogy of Cain and his descendants, verses 17 to 24. You can look there in your Bible in chapter 4. You'll see that. Verses 17, Cain, or verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then you go down to the end, verse 24, and there we have Lamech, this descendant of Cain, which really typifies Cain's line. And there we saw the expansion of godless humanity, that, that what happens with Cain is we see this rapid expansion of human beings over the face of the earth, and this is a godless line. Remember, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And so what we're meant to understand is that as Cain reproduces and his son reproduces and all this reproduction and multiplication begins, we are seeing the expansion of a godless society. And one of the things we saw last week was that although this is a godless society, it is a society that still sees God's common grace. So we saw the advent of culture, that it is, it is Cain's children, it's his descendants who, who bring animal husbandry into being, and musical arts, and metalworking. These are expressions of human culture that come through the line of godless Cain. So there we saw the expansion of godless humanity, but also the extension of common grace. That was verses 17 to 24. And then in stark contrast to Cain and his descendants, we are introduced in verses 25 to 26 to a more hopeful genealogy. And I say we're introduced to it because what you have in verses 25 to 26 is the introduction of this long genealogy in chapter 5. So you can't understand the genealogy in chapter 5 without going back and seeing the introduction of it at the end of chapter 4. So go with me to those verses. Let's look at that. Verses 25 to 26 as we prepare to look at the genealogy in chapter 5. So we get Cain's line, and then it says this, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring or seed instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then we get this genealogy, this longer genealogy coming out of the line of Seth. So before we even get into chapter 5, why, ask yourself this question before we even get into chapter 5, why is this a hopeful line? Why is this hopeful, what we've seen so far? And there are two main answers to that question. 
The first is, this is the line of the seed, that word seed. Now, if you haven't been here for much of this Genesis series, I just want to take you back to a very important verse in all of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that is when God is sentencing the serpent, sentencing Satan after he tempts Eve and leads to the fall. And what does God tell the serpent? What does God say to Satan? He says that the woman will have a seed who will crush his head. Adam and Eve are listening. Their ears are perked up. They're listening to what God is saying to Satan. And what God tells Satan is that there is going to be a human offspring, a seed, a singular he, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now that's a, that's a very important verse in all of the Bible because it really casts this shadow over all of Scripture. We know after chapter 3 verse 15 that we are running through Scripture looking for that he figure. We are looking for the seed. And the next time we get this word seed is at the end of chapter 4, the verse I just read. God has appointed for me another seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So we know that this is a hopeful thing that we're moving into here because this is a line of the seed. And in fact, it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, uh, Luke records a genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to the very beginning. And he includes this portion of that genealogy, which tells us that what we are seeing in chapter 5 through Seth is the line that leads to Christ. Luke tells us that explicitly in chapter 3. So that's the first reason we know already before we get into chapter 5 that this is hopeful. It's the line of the seed. The second reason we know it's hopeful is that this is the line of worship. It says at the end of chapter 4, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, this is kind of the place where humankind worships God. This line, this is the place where there's the hope of a seed. This is the place where God's name is called upon. And we talked at the end of the sermon last week about what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord. Do you call on the name of the Lord? Are you part of this family? calls on the name of the Lord in faith and hope, trusting Him with your life. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Hopeful Line, and we'll be looking, as I said, at all of chapter 5. So if you will go ahead and stand with me for this long reading. Yes, we're going to go ahead and read it all. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 32. This is God's Word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Incredible words. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I want you to jump ahead. I want to show you this. We're going to have the account of the flood after this. And then look at the end of chapter 9, verses 28. And 29, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So the way it reads is what we got this, this uh, explanation of the flood, which is kind of a parenthesis, really, in the life of Noah. But then Noah, too, at the end of chapter 9, we read, same fate, Noah died. You can go ahead and be seated. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning and just ask for his blessing on our time. Father, we are so grateful to be recipients of your sacred scriptures. Father, many people throughout history have bled and died so that the Bible could be out among the people. Many people have, even today, many people live in the world desperate to have just one page of Holy Scripture, 
even if it be Genesis chapter 5. So God, we thank you for your holy, perfect word, which gives life. Through your word, you made the heavens and the earth. You made all things, and through your word now, you make your people, and you grow your people into the image of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, help us today to respond to your word, to sit under it. God, would you show us each individually how this applies in very specific ways to our own circumstances, our own domestic circumstances, our own uh, career, work circumstances, and every facet of our lives in work and in leisure, with family and with friends and colleagues, with our, with our own personal selves as we're alone. Would you just make this word applicable to each of us, we pray. Would you make yourself great in the eyes of your people through this time together in your word, we ask. God, we pray your protection from the evil one as we gather here this morning, that the word would fall on receptive soil and bear fruit a hundredfold, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to consider how this genealogy in chapter 5 gives the reader hope. We've already seen, as I said, uh, we're set up for hope. As we come into this genealogy at the very end of chapter 4, it, it gives us a note of hope that carries us forward. But now I want to see how this genealogy, these specific verses, give the reader hope. And I think they give us hope in three ways, and you'll see these three points listed. I don't get to surprise you with these uh, on, on the slide, but you have them there. You can open up now in your bulletin, and you'll see them three ways. We are brought back first. Secondly, we are brought up. And thirdly, we are brought forward. This genealogy does all of that for the reader. The, the reader in ancient Israel and the reader today. In hope, brings us back, brings us up, and brings us forward. So let's look at the first of these. We are brought back. There is a pattern to this genealogy that is repeated throughout. And we can see this pattern more closely with Seth. In verses 6 to 8. Let me just read those verses to you so you can see the pattern. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So we get this repeated. Different names, different lifespans, but the same pattern is repeated throughout chapter 5. And one of the ways that we can crack open this genealogy, if we're asking ourselves, what do we do with this thing? How do we understand it? How do we actually study a genealogy? One of the ways that we can crack it open for deeper study is to notice where the text departs from the pattern. Does that make sense? So we're going through, we get this pattern, and then it's a little different than what we typically see. And that, I think, raises our eyebrows and causes us to put a little more attention on the text. You want to be going to sleep as we read these, perhaps, and we're just seeing the same stuff. And then there's a change. And that, I think, is meant to perk up our ears so that we can focus a little more closely on what we have here. It tells us these changes or these extra bits of information 
tell us what the author is trying to emphasize as he provides the reader with this list of names. There are particular things that he's wanting to say to us with this list of names. And that's exactly what we have here in Genesis 5. The first and most obvious departure from the pattern is at the very beginning, as you would expect, at the very beginning with Adam as the genealogy is being introduced. We would expect that because uh, the author really is setting up a list of descendants, and so there's a little more commentary that is given at the beginning. But nonetheless, this should draw us in. In terms of our attention, as we look at these first five verses, we should, we should perk up those ears and focus a little more on what the text is saying. So let's look at those first five verses. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. You see all that? When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Notice that. After his image. And named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So... We are told that this is a written account of the descendants of Adam. Is this an account that, that preceded Moses who wrote this? Was, this? was this written down at a particular time, maybe by Noah? And then that was transmitted forward to the day of Moses? We don't know, but the language implies a written account. This is a written account of the descendants of Adam. And then we are brought back to the creation accounts Of Genesis 1 and 2. It has been a little while since we've reflected on creation. We have not been talking about creation lately. We've been talking about corruption lately. Genesis 1 to 2 give us all of this wonderful, positive, glorious language about God's making the world and blessing and the creational intentions of God and how the world was good, 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 very good. Everything is great. We have God making man from the dust. We have Eve being brought to, taken from his his side, built, the Bible says, built. And then he brings Eve to Adam, this beautiful picture of life in paradise. In Genesis 1 and 2. We haven't been there in a while. The last two chapters, Genesis 3 and 4, have been consumed with the topic of sin and death. We have the fall in Genesis 3, and then we have the expulsion from the garden and judgment of God at the end of Genesis 3. Then just eight verses later, we get the murder of one son by another. Cain and Abel, and then we get Cain's descendant Lamech, who is this also a boastful murderer, a vengeful, boastful, godless murderer. This has been tragic, to say the least. In chapters 3 and 4, but now, at the beginning of this genealogy, This seemingly boring and dry passage of Scripture, 
the reader is brought back to creation, really for the first time. Brought back behind all of the nastiness of chapters 3 and 4 and reminded of God's creational design and intention for human beings. How so? Well, God brings us back to the image, reminding us that, that Adam was made in the image of God, reminding us that we resemble God, we are like God, we are like God in that we have intelligence, we have reason, we have a mind. We are like God in that we are moral creatures. We perceive good and evil. We are able to navigate life, and we do navigate life in moral terms, in moral categories. And we represent God all across creation. We are to have dominion. We are to subdue the earth. And we are those who relate to one another and those who relate to God. And so when we talked about the image of God, we said that man resembles God, man represents God, and man relates to God and like God. And in all of these ways, we are made in the image of God. And so the text brings us back to this truth. We are brought back to the blessing. Remember when God made Adam and Eve, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So in creation, we have the image of God imparted, but we also have this blessing over their lives. Go forth. I bless you. I am with you. My face shines upon you. As we find in that ironic blessing in Numbers. So we're brought back to the blessing. We're brought back to the relationship. Image and likeness we see here points to sonship. Notice what it says in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, here's what I want you to see at that point. Likeness and image entail sonship. What that's meant to tell us is that in the garden, the kind of relationship that you have between God and Adam and Eve, and I've said this before, is one of a father to his children. Just as Seth is in the image and likeness of Adam as his son, so too are we meant to understand that, that Adam and Eve made in the image of God are God's children, that God has, has made them as sons and daughters. He is a father over them. So what's my point? What am I getting at here? This is my point. This genealogy connects the line of Adam through Seth back to creation. In other words, this line is infused with these hopeful creational realities. This is the line of blessing. This is the line of relationship with God. We know that all of Cain's descendants in the godless line are also made in the image of God. We know that all people everywhere are made in the image of God. But what we're meant to understand here is we start out with this genealogy that this is a hopeful line precisely because it is a line that is infused with all of the realities of Genesis 1 and 2. All of those blessings, that image being realized through this line. Although the fall has occurred, God still blesses. God still uses. It's incredible. God still works. 
he has not cast people off. See, when the fall occurred, God could have destroyed every atom, every cell in the universe. He could have destroyed everything justly. But God, we're told by Paul in Romans 3, looks forward to Christ. This is amazing. If you've ever read this in Romans 3, it's amazing. Romans 3, 25, 20, 25 to 26, God looks down into history and he sees Christ, whom he's going to send, and with patient forbearance, he, he deals with the sin of mankind, of his elect people throughout history, and he reserves judgment upon them until the Christ comes and he pours it out on him. All the sin of all those past, present, and future. That is how God is able to still use people and still work with people and still bless people. It is through this line that the fullness of what it means to be human can be realized. And what we need to understand this morning is that through Christ, who is the, the ultimate end of this line, through Christ, we get grafted into this line. Here's what I want you to see. This is your family. If you're a Christian this morning, Methuselah is in your family. Kenan and Enoch and Lamech, this Lamech, not the other Lamech, Noah. This is our family. Do you understand that? We're going to be worshiping our king, our God, forever with Methuselah and Noah in truth and in time. We will worship forever with these fellow people of God. This is our story. This is our story. This is the line through Christ that we are grafted into. However, this is important, although the text brings us back behind the fall. So that's my point, is the text is bringing us back behind chapters 3 and 4 to Genesis 1 and 2. But although it does that, it does not want us to forget the fall. And so we read the dreadful words repeated throughout this genealogy, what? And he died. That's probably the most striking feature. In fact, I have chosen to understand this genealogy in a positive, hopeful way. Because I think that's the way we're to understand it, given the end of chapter 4. And given what we find with Noah being righteous and blameless at the beginning of chapter 6. But some commentators come to this passage and really don't want us to forget the fact that the most pervasive feature of these 32 verses are these words, And he died. That's what we read repeatedly throughout these verses. In fact, it's incredible when you get to Adam. The end of Adam in verse 5, and it says, and he died. Can you imagine the moment of Adam's death? This is the one who was sculpted from the earth itself. God breathed into him. He walked with God in perfect paradise. And here this man is literally returning to the dust as God told him that he would. And that brings us to our second point as we consider this refrain, and he died. It brings us to our second point, we are brought up. So in this genealogy, this hopeful line, we are brought back, but here we see we are brought up as well. We leave Adam and continue our journey through these names, 
recognizing a clear pattern until we get to verse 21. Now you're excited because now we're at verse 21. We're getting there. We're getting to, towards the end. In verse 21, we read this. Look at chapter 5, verse 21, if you will. When Enoch had lived 65 years, now remember, you're reading this genealogy, you're tempted to kind of nap a little, and you get to verse 21, you're sluggish. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked, what? Enoch walked with God. Okay. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Okay, that's incredible. We've just read that. And he was not, for God took him. No, and he died. Where's the, where are those words? And he died. Those words have been repeated every single time. Not this time. And he was not, for God took him. We've already seen that this is the line of the seed. This is the line of faith, the line of worship, the line of creational fulfillment. But now we're introduced to something that overflows with hope. You have to see this. This is a hopeful line. It overflows with hope and with fascination. Instead of reading, Enoch lived after he fathered Methuselah. Just that word lived, which is what we're constantly expecting. Verse 22, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And then walking with God is repeated again in verse 24. And instead of the words, and he died, as I said before, at the end of verse 24, we get, and he was not, for God took him. So if we are brought back in the opening verses of this genealogy, here we are brought up. Do you see where I'm going here? If we're brought back in those first five verses with Adam, that unique set there, then when we come to verses 21 to 24, the reader, whether ancient Israelite or contemporary person with us today, we are brought up, up to an intense intimacy and communion with God. He walked with God up above the consequence of death. I mean, who would expect something like this at this point? What did God tell Adam was going to happen? Return to the dust. And we've seen it many times now. And he died. This idea of walking with God implies the most intimate relationship you can imagine. It implies following God's way, walking along God's path with him. You know, that's not what we do. God is leading out in front on a path, and we get weary on the path, or we just, in our own sinful state, as we, as we enter the world, we, we have nothing to do with that path. We're doing the exact opposite. God is going down one road, and we're going down a totally different road. Or maybe in the Christian life, God is leading us out in front, and we just begin to sort of back up a little bit. Or we turn around and go the other way, or we decide to take this little side path that leads to nowhere, off of the main path where God leads us. Here, Enoch is described as one who walks along God's path with him. He knows God. He follows God. And you might, uh, well, it might come to mind at this point, the story of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, we see only two people in the whole Bible 
who this happens to. They just get taken up to God. They just get brought up into his presence. They don't die. They get translated from earthly life to heavenly existence in the presence of God. It's an incredible thing. I mean, there's not much you could say about it because we just don't know. We don't know how it happened, what happened, what, were the, what would you have observed had you been there with Enoch. We do know what Elisha observed when Elijah was taken up to heaven. 2 Kings 2.11, Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets of God, walking along. Elijah is Elisha's mentor. They're walking along together. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Elisha here, Elijah there, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. In case you're wondering... Do we as Christians believe that happened? Yes. Do we believe Christ went up into the clouds? Yes. Do we believe he's coming back in the clouds? Yes. He rose bodily from the dead? Yes. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible? Yes. That God parted the Red Sea? Yes. That Jonah was in the belly of a fish? Yes. With God, nothing is impossible. Elijah went up in a whirlwind and Enoch too went up into heaven. Just these two guys. So what we have here with Enoch can be boiled down to one word, life. Let me say that again, life. And I mean life in its fullest sense because we're meant to get that from this passage. When it says he walked with God, we can really boil that down to this. He knew God. He knew God personally in relationship and that's precisely what Jesus says eternal life is in John 17. To know God, to have life, is to know God. And we also see here that he doesn't die. He lives forever. He has eternal life to know God. He has everlasting life. He does not die. In other words, we are being told that this is the line of life. Do you see that? This is the line of creational blessing. This is also the line of life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says that Christ, when he appeared, listen to this about the Lord Jesus. When Christ appeared, who is in this line, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the death-defeating line. This is the line in which people become overcomers of death, the great enemy of us all. We've seen people die. We've seen the people that we love die. Death is, death is an awful thing. We might celebrate a person's life at a funeral, but we grieve their death because death is a great enemy of man. And Christ gets rid of it in this line. Being anticipated already here with this figure, Enoch, who walks with God in life, who goes up into heaven in life. So what do these verses tell us is the way to life? Walking with God, it says, the way of life, boiled down to this. 
walking with God. You know what that means? It's not head knowledge. Or I should say this, it's not mere head knowledge. We're not anti-intellectuals, just a, a pious bunch of devotional addicts who don't want to use our brains that God gave us, our reason, our thinking. Of course not. That's senseless. That's nonsense. That leads to all kinds of heresy, wrong living. No, we use our minds. We do have knowledge, but it's not mere head knowledge at the core of the Christian life, at the core of the godly life. It's not mere doing things. It's not service and activity. Let's say you heard me at the beginning of this service, and you say, man, I want to get in there. I'm going to volunteer. I hope you will. I hope you will. But if you do, that's not it. That's not going to be the core of your Christian life. That is not what defines the Christian life. That's not what it looks like at its deepest level. Not just doing things. It's not keeping a list of rules. It is walking with your God. Think in those terms. Every day when you wake up, God, give me grace today to walk with you. I want to walk with you today. I really do. I want to know you. I don't want to turn from your path. I don't want to not follow you. I want to know you intimately in communion. I want to pray. I want to seek you through your word. I want to apply everything to you. I want to find the connection between everything I see, smell, touch, and hear. I don't know if I missed one. But all of the senses, I want to direct all of my sense experiences to you. God, help me to walk with you. This is the way of God's people. Enoch is described in Hebrews 11:5 as a man of faith who pleased God. In Jude 14, he's described as a man who proclaimed the way of God and called others to repent. Why did he do that? Because he walked with God. That's it. That's a ripple effect of his walking with God. I want to read you a quote from a 19th century Scottish theologian. Marcus Dodds, I just love the way he captures what it means to walk with God. So listen to these words. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Isn't that one of the ways we really should think about the Christian life? Do you like God's company? Because if you don't, you don't know him. You don't know him if you don't like his company. That's at the core of it all. You got to want to be with God. I continue, because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path, we walk with God when he is in all our thoughts. Everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all of our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will, a readiness to give up what we find us does cause any misunderstanding between us and God. Do you see the friendship language? A feeling of loneliness, loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God. A cold and desolate feeling when we are conscious of doing something that displeases him. Holy four corners would be filled with people who walk with God. That's our, that's our objective. That's the objective of every sermon, the objective of every effort, the objective of every little setup detail. Even this stand right here set up that people might walk with God. And in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 9, we are told that Noah also walked with 
God. And that leads us to our final point this morning as we finish up. We are brought forward. So we are brought back. We are brought up. You see, we're brought back with Adam's portion at the beginning. We're brought up with this bit about Enoch. And now I want you to see that we are brought forward as we finish up. As this genealogy in chapter 5 comes to a close, it ends with an explicit note of anticipation. It brings the reader forward. Look at verses 28 to 29. 28 to 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This is most certainly a departure from the normal wording. It's a little bit of extra here, so we're meant to put a spotlight on this and see what's going on here. Just as the words, and he died, show that the fall is at the forefront of chapter 5, so too do these words from Lamech. The curse is in effect. You see that with Lamech. He recognizes, we need comfort. We need comfort. This is rough. Life is hard. There's a bunch of canes running around all over the world. And there's toil and sadness and murder and vengeance and evil and death. The curse is in effect. Painful toil characterizes man's life on earth. It is as God said in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. You can go there and read that. It is not entirely clear what Lamech had in mind with regard to the life of his son Noah. He's prophesying essentially about Noah. We have a, a, a little bit of a prophecy here. Noah's going to come and he's going to do these great things. And it's not entirely clear what Lamech had in mind with regard to Noah. But one thing is clear. And this is the point I want you to see and we're going to finish with this morning. One thing is clear. He was hopeful of deliverance. In other words, in this line, you got to see this. In this line, we have the hope of deliverance. We have creational blessing. We have life fully understood, and we have here the hope of deliverance. First, well, let me say this. We can think about this deliverance in two ways. First, through Noah himself, God would deliver humanity. Noah was the one righteous man, along with his family, who was saved. Can you imagine that? That's inconceivable. There was a church of eight people, and it was Noah and his family. That's it. Every other person, let me say this, including those who came off of the line of Seth, not just those uh, in the line of Cain, but even all the people who coming off the line of Seth to the side, to the left and to the right, the other sons and daughters, all of the, the, the world is filled with wicked rebels against God. And we're going to see that at the, at the beginning of chapter six, but not Noah, by God's grace, Noah and his family were righteous. He is like another Adam. Noah would build the only means of salvation, the ark. Noah would receive God's covenantal promise after the flood. Noah is a deliverer figure. So I think that's in view. But second and more importantly, this anticipation coming from the lips of Lamech pushes forward to the one greater than Noah. The future, Christ will be the true deliverer. 
He will be the ark of salvation. He will bring comfort and rest and cessation to the curse. He will put away the curse. He'll put away death. He will be the second Adam. He will be the one who initiates the new covenant and new creation. Do you see all of that in the genealogy? All of that packed in here to chapter 5. And so as we set out on our journey through the pages of human history, we are given a line. At the very beginning of the Bible, we are given a line. This is the beginning of that story. This is the beginning, as I said earlier, of our story. Let me end with a little note here. You might have expected that we would pull out our calculators and thought about the lifespans here of these uh, folks, that we would sort of look at a timeline and talk about how in the world a person lived to be 930 years old. What I've done today is I want to, to go through this in a way that puts the right kinds of questions and the right kind of focus on a passage like this. This is what we should be getting out of this passage, is what we've just looked at. This hopeful line and all the ways that it just explodes and erupts with hope. But at the beginning of next week, I do want to address briefly, I don't think there's too much that really can be said here, but I do want to address the lifespans, which seem a bit weird to us, as well as the timeline that we're given here with these genealogies. The hopeful line. If we're Christians, our line. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us beyond our imagination. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed, who is life, who is the deliverer, to whom all of Scripture points. Thank you that he is our friend, that he is a friend of sinners like us, that he is our Savior, that he saves us from your wrath, that he is our master who directs all of our steps, and that he is the one who says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Thank you, Father, that you have securely placed us in the hand of the conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him. Help us walk with him every day, every hour of every day, that we would even dream of him in our sleep, that he would be so impressed upon our minds and hearts that our entire lives would be Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.